I saw your be good baker running by again the other day, says I to old Mr. Brennan. Ah, yes, says he. I've never seen her stand still. And she's running rings around the rest of us with our Brennan's be good bread. Only 60 calories a slice. 60 calories, says I. That's just a whole meal, is it? No, says he. It's the whole meal, the whole grain, and the waste. 60 calories a slice and high in fiber, whatever way it slices. That's why anything baked is better with Brennan's. Today's bread today. At the Irish Independent, we don't just cover sport. We tell the stories written all over Ireland. After all, each struggle, triumph, high and low, leaves a mark that lasts. Irish Independent, written all over Ireland. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Wecker, the tech editor of The Irish and Sunday Independent. And this week we have a long, deep and wide-ranging interview with the Data Protection Commissioner, Helen Dixon, one of the most powerful figures in the uh, tech world in terms of regulating the tech giants, Facebook, Google, uh, Apple, Twitter, uh, Yahoo and others. We're going to talk about uh, billions of euros in fines for or potentially billions of euros of fines for tech companies. We're going to talk about the public services card here in Ireland, a very controversial topic. And we're also going to look at uh, the issue of uh, the human genome sequence DNA and whether that can be held in a database here in Ireland. The conversation is uh, gets quite technical at times and is very wide ranging, but it's well worth listening to if you're interested in the sector. So I started out by asking uh, Helen Dixon, about the public services card. So we've issued a report to the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection this week. It's the conclusion uh, of uh, an investigation that we opened in October 2017 into matters of concern in relation to the public services card. And specifically, the report is making findings in relation to the lawful basis uh, for data processing in relation to SAFE2 registration on the public services card, and it's making findings in relation to documentation retention and transparency. Uh, and so what we have found uh, in, in light of the analysis we conducted is that the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection does not have a basis for processing personal data when it's in the case of a person who's seeking to avail of a service with a public sector body other than the department itself. And why not? So what we have found when we looked at uh, the Social Welfare Consolidation Act of 2005, which is the main constituent of legal basis that the department argues in terms of the processing that it carries out, we found when we've looked at that legislation, which incidentally is no trivial matter to examine, uh, because it's actually, uh, of course, a codification of general social welfare legislation in Ireland, uh, it has uh, a massive number of provisions and the, the Consolidation Act of 2005 itself has been amended at least once a year, every year since 2005. It's not a piece of legislation that deals specifically with issues pertaining to uh, registration for identity authentication purposes in the state or which deals specifically with the public services card. And when you look into the legislation to look at those types of provisions, 
some of the key provisions are, for example, Section 241 of that Act. It's been amended 28 times by 11 different enactments since 2005. So when I say we've looked at the legislation, let me emphasize that that has been a very uh, involved and and detailed and, and lengthy analysis for the office. But when we look at the legislation, essentially what is clear is that there are provisions in that legislation that provide specifically for the Minister for Employment Affairs and Social Protection in the context of uh, processing claims or social welfare benefits to require someone to uh, authenticate their identity to a certain standard, uh, and it prescribes a means by which uh, that must be done. Uh, and it suggests uh, or, or it proposes in the legislation the means by which someone can demonstrate that they have authenticated their identity to that standard and it sets out consequences for failing to do so, specifically where someone is making a claim or being paid a benefit. Uh, and those provisions uh, in that area are absent when it comes to anybody that isn't the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection in the context of paying benefits. So what we say is there's, there's a very specific difference in the legislation and an absence of provisions when it comes to public sector bodies that aren't the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection. So in a nutshell, uh, the, the card can be used then for, uh, to continue, uh, if you have one, for example, if you're processing um, payments or you're receiving social welfare payments, that's fine but it can't be used or expanded for other uses. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so that's a, that, that's a very important point to emphasize. So what we say is that any cards that have been issued, their, their validity is not in question by anything we've found in this report. Uh, they can and should continue to be used in the context of availing of free travel or availing of benefits uh, that a person is claiming from, from the department. Uh, they can also, any cards that already have been issued and, and are valid, can also be used when availing of a service with any other public sector body. So, for example, if someone optionally uh, brings their public services card uh, to renew their driver's license, uh, th there is no issue with that. But what we're saying is that it must be an option that a person who already has one uses it. Uh, and, and then, as you said, that a public sector body cannot now require someone who doesn't already have one to go and procure one in order to avail of their service. So what we saw, and, and part of the reason why we opened the investigation in October 2017, is that uh, the, the department itself, the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection, published information in a comprehensive guide on safe to registration and the public services card uh, that set out a schedule in relation to bodies that were imminently going to make it mandatory that individuals uh, submit to safe to registration and procure a PSC in order to avail of their service. Uh, and we are saying that is not possible uh, in, in terms of the legislation that underpins uh, the data processing in this area. And, and equally, we say it applies in the case of MyGovID. You'll be aware that that is uh, an online government portal uh, that is designed to facilitate identity authentication for the purposes of availing online of government services. But it's mandatory in order to have a verified account on MyGovID 
to use a PSC and we say that availing of an online service, it, it cannot be mandatory if you don't already have a PSC to procure one. What was the big problem? What was the major objection um, to expanding this? So, um, as I've said, when you conduct a legal analysis, you see that the lawful basis for the data processing isn't there. But when you ask me what the big problem is, in reality, from a data protection point of view, it's an issue of foreseeability for individuals. So uh, I, I have to know in the context of my data being collected, <clears throat> excuse me, and processed by, by any public sector body, including the department, what it means in terms of the data I'm handing over, what's going to be done with it, uh, what, what decisions will arise from the data, whether I'm under obligation in any way to keep it updated, and, and what the consequences will be for me if I don't hand over the data or if I don't keep it updated. And the big issue that uh, arises with SAFE 2 and the public services card as it has been implemented currently is that there is no foreseeability for individuals. Uh, it, it's not clear why it's being required in certain cases and what purpose it serves. To take an example, um, we, we've looked at that schedule on uh, the department's website in terms of bodies that, that uh, are, are, are due to make it mandatory. Uh, and one of the examples is the Department of Education appeals system for school transport schemes. So, so currently the Department of Education offers, uh, 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 operates an appeal system and you can actually apply online to make an appeal against a decision about school transport or you can apply uh, offline uh, using paper forms. Nothing in, in the current offline or online system requires uh, identity authentication to any particular standard beyond information about uh, children that has to be filled out and, and, and the school they attend in the form. Now it says on the department's website it is to be made mandatory that you will have to safe to register, procure a PSC and use it to make an appeal. Um, it, it's, it's very difficult uh, for anyone to foresee why that's a requirement. So the public services card uh, has been put out there uh, with uh, descriptions that it is to simplify identity registration, it's to reduce the need for duplicate, costly and time-consuming repeat processes, it's to reduce the need for people to bring the same supporting documentation, uh, when they're engaging with public sector bodies, and it's to act as a facili facilitation to procuring high-value services. And we say, in reality, uh, as it's being rolled out, it, it doesn't deliver on those. Um, I I'll, I'll just mention a couple of examples of, of uh, journalists who've, who've written about the card. The um, Irish Times journalist, Carlin Lillington, uh, recounted in one of her articles her experience of using the, the public services card. Um, and, and she talks about the fact that she was required to procure a public services card for the purposes of applying for Irish citizenship, which she duly did. Um, and uh, subsequently, she needed to renew her driver's license. She looked at the information available online, which said that the best form of identity to bring was the public services card when renewing the driver's license, and no other form of documentation would be necessary. She queued up for an hour and a half. She presented her public services card, uh, and it turned out that, in fact, her nationality information hadn't been updated. 
um, such that the public services card was not sufficient to demonstrate that she was an Irish national and she had to go home, get her passport and rejoin the queue. So, so this is why we say there are issues of foreseeability and there are issues about what the purported benefits are uh, as compared to reality. What will this mean now going forward for the government and for the department in terms of those cards that have been issued in terms of their system of application? Are you saying that the basis on which they were uh, issued and that they've been operating up to now is in some way not valid or legitimate? So what we're saying is that the processing that the department, and when I say the department, I'm always referring to the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection, that its personal data processing, when it's been processing to issue cards, specifically when an individual requires it because it's mandated by another public sector body, that that lacked a lawful basis. It, it is not, a, as a starting point for looking at lawful basis, it's not legislatively underpinned when you examine the Social Welfare 2005 Consolidation Act. But we say that doesn't affect the validity of, of cards that have been issued. And so what we're saying from, from this point onwards, the effect for the department itself is in, in many ways minimal because there is a basis in the legislation uh, for the department to require someone to produce a PSC if, if they are availing of, of a benefit or making a claim with the Department of, of Social Protection. But we are saying that they have to stop. When, when someone contacts them seeking to make an appointment to have uh, themselves safe to registered uh, and have a PSC issued, they have to inquire of that individual uh, what transaction they're about to engage in uh, with with the department or another body uh, before issuing the card. And if the person is seeking it for the purposes of, of engaging with the body other than the department, they cannot any longer issue them. So they need to go back. They need to look at the lawful basis. They need to consider the findings we've made. They need to consider whether and if these issues should be remedied, whether it really was intended and whether it is still intended into the future that the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection is de facto the body in the state that, that is charged with implementing a single electronic identity uh, system and and ensure that there's a lawful basis if that is what's intended. I mean, and just on that point, does this would we logically draw from this that the idea of a single uh, identification uh, card across all government services that if in some way that that is not um, proportionate from a point of view of data privacy or data protection? Are you saying that we can't have one card that does everything? Uh, no, we're, we're, we're not saying that at all. We're saying that if that's what's intended and, and required, that there isn't a lawful basis there currently for it. And there, and there are a number of elements of, of lawful basis, but for, for government, a starting point is generally that there's clear and precise rules in legislation that underpin it. And at the moment, what we say is that the... Social welfare legislation doesn't make clear in, in any provisions, and it's not just that it doesn't make it clear, the provisions are absent to say that the uh, Minister for Employment Affairs and Social Protection 
is the entity that will perform identity authentication functions in respect of uh, any transaction an individual will have with the public sector body, that the minister will issue a, a public services card on foot of that, and that it is mandatory that an individual produces that card uh, if they are to avail of, of any public service, and the consequences for not producing it are. And, and those provisions are absent uh, in the social welfare legislation. We yeah. might talk a, a little bit about the card itself. Well, what, what, if, just if before wish. we do, what I was going to ask was just to, to kind of wrap up that idea. Um, you're not saying that the government, should it actually come up with the right type of legislation, cannot uh, legislate for a national identity card? Because a lot of this debate has been around you take a step back, has been around the idea of a national compulsory identity card. And, and you know, that rubs some people up the wrong way. Some people like it, some people don't. Some countries have it. Uh, common law uh, countries uh, have traditionally and historically um, not been especially keen on it. We kind of have a fear of being stopped in the street and asked by a police or a guard, you know, your papers, please. That's a tradition we have. But uh, I just wanted to ask, are you saying that the idea of a national identity card, um, that is permissible if the right legislation underpins it? Is that what you're saying? So so we're not making a, a comment on government policy or what government policy should be. As you and I have talked before, um, it, it can't be the case that a national identity card automatically offends the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights uh, or EU data protection law because national identity cards exist in, in, in the majority, if not all, of, of, of the continental countries. Um, so it is a possibility uh, by carefully laying down a lawful basis uh, that uh, such a card can be instituted. If, if that were, it's not the stated uh, policy of, of the government in Ireland, but it is possible. To be clear, legislation is only part of the lawful basis, but, but certainly it would be a very significant starting point in terms of clarity around uh, what the Oireachtas would intend uh, to, uh, yeah, so be, because if I were to interpret what we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes, really what you're saying is that um, technically uh, the basis for uh, the public services card isn't watertight, and that's the determination that you're making. You're not actually commenting on the substantive issue, on the compatibility or otherwise of data protection rules and the idea of a mandatory compulsory form No, of we're very specifically uh, examining the facts as they exist on the ground now and applying the legal analysis uh, to those facts. It's, it's not for us to lead government policy uh, or, or to lead the Oireachtas on this. Was there an, an element of a, was there a biometric element here? Did you make a determination one way or the other as to whether or not um, uh, the use or processing of a photograph in a particular way constituted a biometric process? So, so I mentioned this has uh, been a, a big body of work for us in terms of investigation and to clarify we had set out from the outset that in conducting the investigation, we were going to divide it into two modules. Uh, and in the first module, we were going to examine lawful basis issues, issues of transparency. We were also going to look at security uh, and uh, the issues of photo matching templates. 
Module two is then intended to look at uh, in more detail my GovID, the single customer view database uh, and the uh, public sector identity data set. But in terms of module one, we've ended up splitting that in two and, and we had notified the department of, of this. And so this report that we've issued this week deals just for the moment with uh, lawful basis, uh, transparency and uh, retention of documentation. We are very shortly going to issue further provisional findings to the department in relation to the photo matching templates um, and, and a number of other areas covering security and, and some of the free travel data that they're processing. So we will be looking at that and making uh, an ultimate finding in the next couple of months uh, in relation okay. to it. Just just to, to, to go back for one second on what you have said is okay, that you know, in the round, the department uh, using this card that it has issued for some of the purposes for which it's intended uh, as a proof for social welfare collection, etc. One of the criticisms that was uh, levied against this, as you will have seen, is that it essentially represents a kind of a, a database which militates against a particular uh, section in society. Now, I know that's a kind of a policy, a policy issue. You might say that that's a, a political a thing, but it, it, it's a very real concern that um, some experts have brought up, um, I think it was uh, the UN Special Rapporteur mentioned this when he was here, uh, Philip Alston, a professor of law at New York University, and his concern was that even within the confines of uh, the Department of Social Protection, that it was, you know, a, a very, very unwelcome um, element uh, in terms of protecting people's identity and uh, people who are vulnerable because they tend to be at the poorer end of the economic scale. Did, was that a consideration at all? That's not a consideration in the analysis that we've conducted because, as I said, we're just looking at the factual scenario in terms of whether there's a lawful basis for the personal data processing that's taking place and we're not categorizing people in, in, in the way that Professor Alston uh, did uh, I mean one comment I would make is that because when you look at the whole range of free travel and social welfare benefits that exist, I I'm not sure you particularly can make a claim that that uh, it is uh, hinged towards one socio-economic bracket only. Some of those benefits are not in any way means tested. Um, and uh, in addition now with paternity benefits and so on, these are being availed of by, by working parents uh, in many cases. So it, it's not an area of, of analysis relevant uh, to the investigation that we conducted. Okay, and so you are, you're going to look at the biometric uh, element of it? We have already uh, conducted uh, an investigation into that area, but because of the phasing of information that we received, we need to make provisional findings now in the next couple of weeks uh, and give the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection a chance to comment on those before we finalise them. Seeing as you're here, I have to ask you, what, what did you make of the comment two years ago? I think it was Regina Darty. Um, it was the famous comment that's always associated with this card, that it's mandatory, but not compulsory. 
you may be quoting it uh, correctly. I, I thought what she said is that the card is not mandatory, but it will be necessary to access all public services. But but essentially, we're saying the same thing. I, I think um, th this is part of the issue of foreseeability for, for the public uh, and uh, why they're being asked to engage with the department in terms of making an appointment at an intro office, bringing along uh, all of the documentation that's required and submitting to the SAFE2 process. Uh, it, it's not intuitive if you want to make an appeal, I think, uh, to a school transport decision to the Department of Education as to why this would be necessary in terms of procuring that service. So there's a lack of transparent documentation uh, and information in, in general that would underpin a, a statement of that nature. And I should mention, we've been talking a lot about the headline issue and the lawful basis. We have also made in the report that we've issued this week significant findings around transparency issues with, with what we call the PSC project. Uh, what are they? So, so there are a whole range of issues. W one of them in particular is a reliance on the social welfare legislation as the uh, transparency information to the public around how this is all lawfully underpinned. And so when you think about the fact that the department only published an informal consolidation sometime in the last year, or certainly since, since we started the investigation, an informal consolidation was published. It's 561 pages. There's 2,410 footnotes. There are several hundred statutory instruments hanging off that 2005 Consolidation Act. And I mentioned to you earlier that one of the key provisions in terms of, of the public services card and uh, identity authentication has been amended 28 times by 11 enactments. So, so that's a transparency finding that it simply isn't um, credible to state that the legislation alone makes it clear to the public uh, what what is happening here. But, but there are other issues around uh, the specificity and the privacy policy of the department that relates to SAFE2, the public services card, the photo matching, the type of additional data that the department may process uh, on foot of usage of the free travel variant and so on. So we've made a variety of findings in, in respect of transparency. And we've also made findings uh, in this report in relation to retention. So, so the whole idea of the public services card is that the minister only issues one after a safe two process, as it's called, has been engaged in, which involves a face-to-face -face interview, bringing along identity documentation you already have, bringing a whole range of supporting documentation like utility bills uh, as proof of address and so on. And so only after being satisfied uh, on foot of that process does the minister issue the public services card. The department is retaining indefinitely and, and uh, forever all of the supporting documentation that a person supplies at initial registration and anything supplied then at the seven yearly renewal of registration. Um, and, and so we have said, if, if identity is authenticated such that the minister is satisfied to issue the public services card, there is no basis for retaining, uh, and certainly not for retaining indefinitely, all of that. It seems to defy the logic of the card. Mm. Now, you mentioned transparency. With 
this determination, this report, you said it's, it's going to be a long report. Uh, will it be published? So um, I, I probably should have mentioned that because we started this investigation in October 2017, it of course predated the current uh, legal regime that we're operating under for, for data protection, which is of course the 2018 Act in Ireland and the uh, General Data Protection Regulation. So in fact, we opened it under the 1988 and 2003 Acts and Section 8 of the new 2018 Act makes clear that we must finish it out uh, under the acts because it predates uh, uh, the new legal framework and under that older framework we we don't have an explicit power to publish we do now under section 149 of the 2018 act but we don't in respect of this report so because we believe there is a significant uh, public interest in in publishing the details and there's also a significant interest in it we have requested uh, that uh, the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection would consider either publishing it itself or, or giving us permission uh, to publish it. So we have put that, that request to them. And how soon do you think that could be? So we've asked them to respond uh, within uh, seven days. Uh, so, so we should have a response from them in relation to that request next week. Okay, look, we... I'd love to talk more about this, but uh, we, we don't have all the, the time in the world, unfortunately. I'd like to move on to another topic. Um, some of the statutory inquiries that you have opened, this office has opened, into some of the uh, multinational companies. I've actually lost track of how many there are. I think there are 17 or 18 uh, around uh, the, the uh, multinationals. I know that at the time of your last report, it was I think it was 15 at the time. There were seven into Facebook, two into WhatsApp one into Instagram, two into Apple, two into Twitter, and one into LinkedIn. I think there have been another two into Facebook since then. Um, yeah, so, right? so our account currently uh, is 61 statutory inquiries in general open, 21 of them are multinational, uh, eight into Facebook, three Twitter, three Apple, two WhatsApp, one into Instagram, one into Google, one into LinkedIn, one into Quantcast, and then... Uh, one that we haven't mentioned publicly so far, one into Verizon me Media slash Oath. That's Yahoo, is it? Uh, no, it is. It was Yahoo. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. It's, it's the it's the, it's company the parent company. That has, yeah, yeah. Um, Oath, as we as we call it now. So we've opened one uh, specifically into transparency issues uh, in in relation to publications operated by Oath. Uh, we but opened that inquiry recently because we were in receipt of, uh, at last count I saw, but there are probably more, 38 individual complaints redirected to us uh, via the IMI, the shared IT platform used by the EU data protection authorities. Um, oh, so, so from around, around Europe? Uh, around Europe. Okay. So the EU data protection authorities were in receipt of, of a significant volume of complaints from individuals specifically relating uh, to oath uh, services. And so we've scoped and opened now uh, an inquiry to look into those issues. I mean, any any service in particular, though? Yahoo is the, was their biggest, their most uh, prolific service. We're, we're looking at a range of publications that operate uh, under that banner mm. and uh, complaints uh, detail issues around effectively no choice when cookie banners are op offered. Uh, the, the, the only option is really to click OK. 
uh, there, there are no granular choices offered. So that, no that it would include some it. online media sites. So when somebody makes a complaint about that, it, 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 it is classed as a complaint against oath and then that gets passed over to you, essentially. So if somebody yeah. in Italy or Germany um, has a complaint with uh, one of the oath proper, uh, proper online properties, it makes its way here. That's, that's exactly it. Um, and it makes its way here on the basis of an, al an analysis of well, which entity is the data controller um, and, and then who's the lead supervisory authority. And based on the analysis conducted by the EU DPAs and validated by our office, we are satisfied uh, that we are the lead supervisory authority in relation to the issues uh, that we've received. So, so that one is underway. Uh, it's been looked at by our special investigations unit at the Data Protection Commission, which has a good background in e-privacy uh, issues and e-privacy prosecutions. You'd have seen we took another um, range of successful prosecutions at the end of July in the district court against companies. So um, I, I think something useful will come out of that. Uh, inquiry aside from establishing if there are contraventions that we need to uh, apply sanctions against and, and uh, have corrective measures applied. Um, there's a lot of um, focus at the moment uh, from EU data protection authorities on the issue of cookies. Um, and, and you may have seen if, 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 if you're following these issues that the UK has issued guidance, the um, French CNIL has issued guidance and, and lots of law firms are comparing the sets of guidance uh, but what we think is going to be useful about the action that we're taking is it's going to take a set of concrete facts uh, and it's, it's going to apply the uh, e-privacy legislation and the GDPR to that set of facts and give definitive uh, answers on the question. There's been some interesting case law probably relevant to this issue and relevant to the issue of cookies coming out of the CJU. You might have seen reports of that fashion ID case um, that uh, related to the like button, the embedding of, of, of the like button. Um, and uh, that's useful clarification from the Court of Justice of the European Union about the joint controller responsibilities and uh, how far the transparency obligations of, of the first controller go uh, and what has to be delivered by the second. So, From your perspective of those 21 multinational uh, investigations, how, how soon will we see the, the first decisions on those? So we've talked before about the, the fact that the 2018 Act splits the investigation and the decision-making uh, operations at the DPC and, and the Commission is the decision maker for the purposes of all of those inquiries uh, with, with me being the sole member of the commission currently. So uh, I have to wait for the investigation reports to land on my desk. Uh, none in respect to the multinationals specifically have landed on my desk yet, uh, but I'm in constant contact with the investigations team here and I am assured the first file, which is likely to be in respect of WhatsApp around the transparency issues, that that file is going to land on my desk in, in the next fortnight. And, um, and then what happens? So then what happens is the decision-making phase starts. So I will uh, examine the report. Uh, I will uh, look at the direction that the uh, investigator has gone in in terms of potential 
uh, contraventions. I will make sure that all of the facts that I think are necessary to decide on the issues are there. Uh, I will apply my own detailed legal analysis to the issues that uh, I say are important in deciding whatever the matter uh, is. I will almost certainly have to correspond uh, with the controller. Uh, it's an own volition one, I think, the first one that's going to land on my desk, so there's no complainant involved. Um, I will have to correspond with the controller uh, to invite submissions on anything that I think uh, would be fair to hear further from them on. Uh, and then ultimately I will make a decision, I will identify if I find uh, contraventions uh, of the GDPR and once I make that draft decision uh, I will circulate it uh, on the IMI under Article 60 to the other EU data protection authorities. And how long do you think a process like that will take? Well it has to take in the order of months because once the file lands on my desk and I can tell you there's, there's a lot on my desk um, but, but these decisions will of course be my top priority um, th there's a process of examination and analysis. Uh, it, it's going to take me some time to parse out the issues and the issues that I may want to invite further submissions from the controller on. I will have to allow them a period of time uh, to respond. I will have to consider their responses and so on. So, you know, while I'd like to say we do it all in 48 hours, it, it, it has to be in the order of months uh, to be done in, in the way that it has to be done. Um, but I won't be looking to extend it uh, for any longer than is necessary. It is a top priority. The other EU data protection authorities are waiting to see drafts of the decisions uh, under the Article 60 process. So um, if it's correct that there will be a file on my desk in the next fortnight uh, before the end of the year, uh, there will certainly be a, a decision circulated on it. Do you expect to get more files on more cases? Oh yeah, th th that's simply the, 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 the one that I'm told by the investigations team looks like the front runner in, in terms of final completion. Uh, I, I have a table from the investigations team of anticipated uh, dates for every other uh, one of the 21 inquiries and, and they will start they will start steadily piling up on my desk in fact. Will we see many more this year? Uh, I will certainly uh, hear that they're on my desk. Uh, I, I will have to wait and see what you know this, what, what the level of effort and issues involved in each are, and to the extent that some of them will involve complainants, so multiple parties that uh, I may need to correspond further with. I can't say at this point. I, the first file though under the 2018 uh, Act, the first inquiry report uh, did land on my desk during July. Uh, I'm now uh, in the process this week of finalizing a decision, the first decision under the 2018 Act uh, and it's an inquiry report uh, into uh, the operation of surveillance technologies by Angartha Shikana. So actually we've conducted it and my decision will be under the law enforcement directive that's transposed on, on, under the 2018 Act as opposed to under the GDPR. It won't be one that will circulate to the other EU data protection authorities. And the, was that in relation to uh, cameras on cars? No. 
Uh, not cameras on cars. Uh, specifically in, in this inquiry, we're looking at CCTV and automatic number plate recognition technology operating uh, schemes approved under Section 38 of the 2005 Garda Act that are operating in various towns and, in fact, villages. Um, uh, around Ireland. So, and does that uh, decision-making process take, is it quicker than with the, 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 the multinational ones? Um, it, it, it's not necessarily quicker. The, the same issues are involved. I've had a very, very uh, thick and, and detailed inquiry report that was based on, uh, first of all, an audit using questionnaires, detailed questionnaires, and then on-site inspections. Uh, of various schemes. So I've had a very thick inquiry report uh, land on my desk. Um, the, the issues are identical in, in, in fact, uh, in terms of the work that I have to do and the obligation on me to make sure uh, I'm entirely fair in the decision making and that uh, anything I'm going to canvas in my decision that may not have been fully aired um, is aired during the decision-making phase with the controller. So, Okay, just to come back to the multinationals for one second, um, in the last few months, the context for this has been things like the, the US FCC fining Facebook $5 billion for, uh, for, uh, for, for pri- privacy-related uh, issues. When you see things like that, I've asked you many times before whether you were willing to to use the the GDPR um, uh, facilities that you have to uh, their full potential. You've said absolutely, that's what you have to do uh, as a regulator. But the bar has kind of been set now, hasn't it, by the US with these huge fines? I mean, do, do you, I don't expect you to say that you're going to take that into account when you're making your own determination. But if a sanction or a financial sanction comes along, won't it have to be a very significant one? So the, the purpose of the fines in, in the GDPR are, are clear. They're supposed to be effective, proportionate and dissuasive. This is why they have been put in. Um, and uh, of course, the size of the fine most certainly goes to arguments about how dissuasive uh, is it. Um, as we've talked before, th- there are huge differences in terms of comparing an FTC settlement uh, with uh, an inquiry being conducted under the GDPR because. For starters, the the nature of that settlement that the uh, FTC wrung out with with Facebook um, is different uh, to an inquiry in that it's a once-off big bang settlement in relation to a whole range of issues wrapped up. In the case of a company like Facebook, we've just talked about the fact that uh, we've eight inquiries alone open into Facebook. And each of those, to the extent that it deals with different issues and different processing operations under the GDPR, can be the subject then of of a separate and individually calculated fine. Um, So uh, we're not really looking at at 5 billion and what the FTC has done. We've got to look at this fairly under the legal framework that we have. And that process uh, is that... Uh, as part of the decision-making phase, I will look at uh, whether there are contraventions identified, uh, what the gravity, nature, and duration of, of those are. 
I will then look at the corrective measures that I need to apply and I'll be obliged to look at, at a fine um, and uh, to look then at the Article 83 criteria around any mitigation criteria or aggravation criteria. Uh, and and a Article 83 is clear, it's up to 4% uh, of global turnover for the preceding year. So that's what's in scope. I, I can't tell you today until the files are, are in front of me and I'm at an advanced stage of the decision making. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's 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 not just the, the Americans. I mean, here in Europe, um, the French um, have fined Google. Um, in the UK, uh, the ICO there, I think they uh, hit Marriott for, I think it was 100 million pounds um, uh, quite recently for uh, data breach that that, hotel company had suffered so we're talking about very large sums of money and ultimately what a lot of people are going to be looking to other than the application of the law and um, you know the justification of the GDPR they're going to be looking at how this affects big companies like Facebook like Apple or LinkedIn or, or others or Microsoft or others um, and that's going to be a relevant factor isn't it I mean that the size of the fine but, but of course it's going to be a relevant factor. I mean, you mentioned the FTC and the, the 5 billion, and you've mentioned mm -hmm. uh, a number of, of other cases of fines that are all, uh, as it happens, under appeal, uh, or, or indicated that they will be under appeal. A huge amount of, of the debate, as you know, about the FTC 5 billion is, oh, but what does it really do? Is, is it now just a cost of business to absorb a fine? In, in fact, uh, the share price uh, went up off the back of the settlement uh, and, and a criticism of the dissenting commissioners in the FTC and others is that it has done nothing to change the business model and the way in which uh, it's alleged that it's done nothing to, to change the way that Facebook does and will handle personal data. So you're absolutely right. The decisions that we make here at the Irish Data Protection Commission, they have to have an impact in terms of punishing any contraventions we find, providing total clarity and hopefully a precedent for others in terms of how we say the GDPR must be applied in, in certain online contexts. And in many ways, I think it is some of the corrective measures that we will apply like in the case of the public services card where we say this has to cease that that will have those impacts that we want and and the fine some will argue it's a cost to business no matter what the size of the fine is others will say well look that was a big wallop and a big slap it, there'll always be that 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 debate about the fines and it's not it, it's not for us to resolve we will do what we're required to do under the gdpr we will put our faith in the gdpr and the policy makers and, and the legislature that that uh, set down these fines of up to 4%. Mm -hmm. um, I may have asked you this before, I can't remember. What happens to the money in the, in the case of a fine? Where does it go? <laughs> uh, the, the money goes into the central exchequer uh, in Ireland is, is the current position uh, as, as we understand it. Um, so... Uh, if a, fine, if a large fine comes from this process, it goes into the, the Central Irish Exchequer. Yeah, and, and sorry, when I say it's the process as we understand it, I didn't mean to imply uh, perhaps it'll end up back resting in the DPC account. What, what I meant by 
by, by saying that is that I've heard other uh, EU countries raising uh, the spectre of a sharing uh, of, of, of large fines on the basis of one-stop shop and the fact that the decision-making uh, is, is to some extent shared in the cooperation and consistency model. So effectively what I was previewing there is that you could find, once we get into full GDPR fining uh, mode uh, off the back of inquiries we've conducted, that there's some revisiting of what happens, the money. Yeah, because uh, I'm not, don't want to at all prejudge what might happen in any of these investigations, but let's say one of them were to be hit by the billion euro or a four billion euro or uh, fine, it ends up in the Irish exchequer. Let's say there are two or three of those. All of a sudden, we're, we're, we're getting uh, what many will, would call... Uh, a very unlikely dividend of several billion euro and the other European countries are thinking, hang on a second. <laughs> that's the way the world, that's what you're saying. Okay, that's just the way it is. As I said, it wouldn't surprise me if if that yeah. did transpire, and again, I'm not prejudging anything, that this matter was revisited. So, some of the aspects of the GDPR, I think it's fair to say across the board, were not fully thought through to the nth degree of mm. implementation, and there are a lot. Surprised that that one wasn't thought through. I mean, <laughs> there are a lot. You of always follow the money of, of it now um, that uh, at the expert subgroups of the European Data Protection Board, you know, about 120 meetings of which we attend a year, where where things that you might have expected were all well thought out are being are being thrashed out. Now. I mean I can see the headline now. Pascal Donahue has extra money for, for tax cuts if Helen Dixon finds Facebook, you know, five million <laughs> Well, you know, I mean that's 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 one interpretation, right? Holidays cancelled again. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So um so uh, you, you so you you're not facing any political no, that, that is not a, a worry we concern ourselves with okay. whatsoever. Okay, all right. Um, before we wrap up, I'd just like to bring up another issue that has come up recently, the issue of DNA and genomics. Mm. It's an issue that's cropped up in Ireland. Um, it's become a quite a, uh, an interesting case. There's a, a company here in Ireland that's currently building a database um, to include data from some 400,000 individuals. And their purpose is to try and, they, they say, is to try and uh, build uh, a database from which we can better understand the treatment of disease. It's, uh, they say it's, it's, this is a common thing. In other countries, they're trying to do the same in Ireland. But there are all sorts of worries and red flags being raised in relation to uh, the personal nature of that data, that there's literally nothing more personal than your DNA, um, what might happen to it, the security of databases. Um, quite a few people have raised objections. Just, do you have a view on it? So we have very extensive engagement with Genomics Medicine Ireland. Uh, as you said, this is a, a very important type of uh, project in terms of implications for for freedoms of and, and, and rights of individuals. Um, there's been a lot of publicity around GMI, the fact that there is a, a Chinese parent company. I've seen... They say it's an investor rather than a parent company. I think they say the parent company is uh, based in the US. I might, now, I might be wrong there. I, I will stand corrected uh, on that. So, But there's been commentary about the link yep. uh, to, to uh, a Chinese company. 
There's also been some commentary uh, around the fact that in other countries and in the UK, the building up of a large scale database of sequenced human genomes is a process that is undertaken and managed by the state mm. rather than effectively outsourced or allowing a private company uh, take take the lead and do this. Th those matters are significant and important, but probably much more a matter for the Department of Health uh, in, in terms of policy there and how it is that, that it is a private company uh, that's looking to be the first to do this in Ireland. Um, our, our engagements with, with GMI are very much ongoing. There are issues that we have raised with them of significance, particularly around consent and processes to withdraw consent uh, in terms of uh, research uh, projects that they've outlined to us. Uh, we had issued a, a series of uh, requests for information to them in May, which are not fully uh, answered yet. Um, so th there are significant data protection issues there, issues of overlap with the new health regulations that have been introduced off the back of the GDPR. Um, and I'm certainly not sitting here today saying to you we're fully satisfied. There is nothing, nothing to see here. Um, we, we, we have to continue to engage with GMI to, to get to the bottom of, of the data protection aspects of it. What kind of questions were you asking them? Um, so uh, there are a number of very specific titled uh, research projects that they have uh, detailed to us. Um, and uh, as I said, the, while they talk about uh, a lawful basis being derived from the explicit and informed consent of the individual, when we pointed out the meaning uh, of consent as clarified by the GDPR, uh, being that it has to be capable, capable of being withdrawn, uh, we saw that there were very significant issues of coherence and clarity there around how that would work. So a lot of, a lot, a lot of questions uh, around that area. Do you have to take into account when you're considering a case like this, I mean, you mentioned um, a significant investor, I don't know to what extent they control the company, but say in China, a Chinese investor, do you have to take into account an ultimate beneficial user or owner being outside the European Union or essentially outside what might be reasonably regarded as um, you know, your influence or the influence of data protection Re Really here. the relevance of that for us is around the issue of data transfers. Uh, and, and, and that's a huge area of focus, as you know, uh, under EU data protection legislation. In fact, uh, we had the hearing in, in the big case that we took uh, to the High Court, we had the hearing out in the CJU on the 9th of July on that standard contractual clauses case. So it's in the context of transfers uh, that investors or parents or other subsidiaries are relevant because you can uh, identify data flows uh, in some cases uh, pertaining to those different locations. Uh, it, it can also be relevant to an analysis of which uh, entity is, is in reality the controller of the personal data processing operations. Uh, and, and is it in fact an EU-based controller? Are there joint controllers? Uh, are, are there de facto 
issues around true decision making in relation to the uh, data processing operations. So it's certainly of relevance to us, but, but in that uh, respect. Mm. Okay, very lastly, very finally, just a quick word about a potential no-deal Brexit or Brexit in general and the effect that that might have on uh, data transfers that you raised uh, a moment ago. One of the more interesting things that uh, I've been listening to recently is the effect on uh, services that currently operate between Ireland and the North. Uh, there are services, for example, like um, uh, free travel for... Uh, pensioners. And it's a good example of how uh, a system that uses um, the transfer of data, we don't really know what's going to happen with that process, how uh, that might be disrupted, whether the authorities can continue to um, to transfer data uh, between Ireland and the UK. Uh, are you expecting an awful lot of disruption there? So what what we do know is that uh, if there is a with deal Brexit and the withdrawal agreement applies, there will be data free flows uh, that will continue between the EU and the UK um, up up to the end of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, at at which point the EU Commission had already signalled it would have hoped that during the withdrawal agreement term it would have uh, entered into negotiations with the UK around an adequacy finding so that beyond the term of the withdrawal agreement, we could have hoped that, that an adequacy agreement would, would then cover data free flows. It's not looking awfully like uh, that's going to transpire. And if there's a no-deal Brexit, what we know is that automatically then the UK becomes a third country and it's very clear there's no chance short term of inadequacy finding short medium or potentially uh, longer term of inadequacy finding uh, being in place so it does mean uh, and we've done a lot of engagement with with IBEC and uh, SME groups around this already uh, it does mean that um, legal mechanisms will have to be put in place by all entities in Ireland that are transferring data to the north of Ireland uh, and, and to the UK, which is an awful lot of public and private sector entities. So um, the information that we've put out there is that the most common uh, and perhaps most convenient mechanism to use will be the standard contractual clauses. We've published an annotated uh, template version of the clauses um, uh, to try and facilitate uh, smaller organizations with less expertise uh, implementing these legal mechanisms. But with all that uh, SMEs in particular have to worry about with the mm. no-deal Brexit, we do know that data protection is likely to be somewhere down the list, but nonetheless, uh, it, it's important that there's an awareness that these requirements will kick in. But for big state and semi-state companies, if they don't do that on day one, I raised the example of, for example, uh, the uh, tr transport for, for older people and the, the uh, transportation companies, bus companies here, bus companies in the north, on day one, if they haven't done that, does that become an unlawful data uh, transfer pro uh, process? Yeah, it would. Once the country, once the UK and Northern Ireland are a third country, um, then it is necessary to what the law describes as adduce adequate safeguards when you're transferring data. 
Um, so it's very unlikely in a structural scenario like that that you could argue that it, that it's a derogation or an exceptional transfer. Um, but but there are there are several bases for legitimising a transfer that can include consent. Um, but uh, it, it's up to each organisation to uh, analyse now what what data they are transferring, uh, and and start looking at what mechanisms might be required. Um, and as I said, we have information published uh, and have given information uh, to the uh, government website on Brexit in relation to this and, and, are, and are open to receiving queries. OK, well, that's all we have time for. Thank you very much, Helen Dixon, Data Protection Commissioner, for joining us this week on The Big Tech Show. Um, if you like this podcast, please do subscribe or tap like or click like and I'll talk to you at the same time next week from Adrian Wechter, tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. Bye-bye.